Ten Days That Shook the World by Thereby Hangs a Tale Productions. Hi. Um, hey. Hi, everyone. Um, so I just wanted to take a minute before the audio drama you're about to listen to begins because um, I, want to, I want to talk to you. Um, what I wanted to say is that what you're about to listen to isn't exactly true. Uh, what I'm trying to say is... That this isn't a history lesson. Right. Um, yes, this is a slice of intensified history. History as we saw it, as we felt it, and as we lived it. This is not the truth, but it's our truth. You should introduce yourself, darling. Oh, yes. Um, sorry. Uh, my name is John Reed, and this is my wife, Louise Bryant. Pleasure. Uh, we're journalists. We both died about a hundred years ago. Actually, you died before me. That is that is true. I I did do that. Thanks for bringing that up. I did die before you. I did do that. You're welcome. The point is that we're a pair of American journalists who, just over a hundred years ago, found themselves in Russia on the eve of a revolution. Right. Uh, and this play. The play you're about to hear is adapted from our experiences, particularly in the way, you know, I wrote them in my book, Ten Days That Shook the World. And the way I wrote about them in my book, Six Red Months in Russia. Can can we introduce ourselves now? Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry. Um, folks, these are the three actors who are going to be playing all the people we met while we were in Russia. This is Natasha. Hi. Fanula. Hey. And Jake. Hello. Oh, and one last thing before we begin. I'm sure lots of you already have your own thoughts about the Russian Revolution, but I'd ask that you put them to one side for the next hour. When we and everybody else lived through the revolution, we didn't know where it would end up going. So try your best to forget everything that happened after, and just listen. Okay? Okay. So, to begin at the beginning, in Petrograd. Nowadays, it's called St. Petersburg, but back then it was still Petrograd. It was the capital of Russia, seat of the Tsar, the king of Russia, until he had been overthrown in February. Now, in these cold October nights, it was where the democratic... Thoroughly democratic. Um, sorry, um, thoroughly democratic government of Kerensky, the prime minister, sat in session. We arrived at Smolny, a beautiful old building with graceful smoke-blue cupolas outlined in dull gold. Under the old regime, it was a famous school for the daughters of Russian nobility. Now, it was the headquarters of the Russian Communist Party, the Bolsheviks. We'd come to receive our press passes from them, and so we approached the official in charge of such things. Ah, hello, comrades. How I help you on this fine day when wind is great eagle through sky. Jake, 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 we're not, we're not doing the accents right now, okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Here's your passes. Good luck out there, comrades. As we left for our hotel, we stared out over the river, glittering and dark. Behind us, Great Smolny, bright with lights, hummed like a gigantic hive. Petrograd presented a curious spectacle in those days. In the factories, the committee rooms were filled with stacks of rifles. Couriers came and went, and the Red Guard drilled. Gambling clubs functioned nocturnally from dusk till dawn, with champagne flowing and stakes of 20,000 rubles. In the centre of the city at night, prostitutes in jewels and fine furs walked up and down crowded cafes. Monarchist plots, German spies, smugglers hatching schemes. And in the rain, the bitter chill, the great throbbing city under grey skies was rushing faster and faster towards... what? We woke on the morning of October 29th to find the world was changing. The previous night, on the orders of the Prime Minister Kerensky, all newspapers associated with the Bolsheviks had been made illegal. In response to this, the Bolsheviks had smashed up the printing presses of the conservative and moderate newspapers. Things had reached a turning point, and there was no going back. In the hall at Smolny, I ran into some of the minor Bolshevik leaders. One showed me a rifle. The game is on. 
Whether we move or not, the other side knows it must finish us or be finished. There is much to do. Horribly much. It is just the beginning. The revolution, the movement of love and compassion and kindness, enough is enough. Enough is enough. From our long slumber, like lions, we rise, shake off the shackles of humanity's demise. We went to the Winter Palace, where Kerensky's cabinet had held its meetings. It was pitch black and nothing moved but soldiers. And so, with a crash of artillery, in the dark, with hatred and fear and reckless daring, new Russia was being born. Friends and workers, comrades in arms, you're free of your chains now. Oppressors will fall, bosses will fall. Like a black river, the soldiers moved towards the Winter Palace. Gunfire came rapidly, and in the open they began to run, stooping low and bunching together until they were jammed up suddenly behind the pedestal of the Alexander Column. How many were shot? I don't know. About ten? I'm not sure. Those who despise you, treat you like cattle. Bring them down, bring them down, bring them down. The army suddenly began again to flow forward. From the light that streamed out of all the Winter Palace windows, you could see the Red Army pour into the building. Over the barricade of firewood we clambered, and leaping down inside gave a triumphant shout as we stumbled on a heap of rifles thrown down by Kerensky's army. The enemy has surrendered without us having to fire a single shot. Victory, comrades, victory! Bring them down, bring them down. The enemy soldiers were disarmed and seized by the Bolsheviks who questioned them. Now, will you take up arms against our people again? No. Fair enough. Upon giving such an answer, they were allowed to go free. Although several members of the cabinet who did not manage to leave the palace before it was taken were arrested. The Red Army ran through the building. One man went strutting around with a bronze clock perched on his shoulder. Another found a plume of ostrich feathers which he stuck in his hat. The looting was just beginning in earnest when one soldier cried, Comrades! Don't touch anything! Don't take anything! This is the property of the people. Come, comrades, let us show that we are not thieves and bandits. Everybody out of the palace except the commissars until we get sentries posted. As each soldier left the palace, he was seized by the self-appointed committee, who went through his pockets and looked under his coat. Everything that was plainly not his property was taken away. The most amazing assortment of objects was thus confiscated. Statuettes, bottles of ink, bedspreads worked with the imperial monogram, candles, a small oil painting, desk blotters, gold-handled swords, cakes of soap, clothes of every description, blankets, the broken handle of a Chinese sword, a coat hanger, a worn sofa cushion. All talking at once, the committee explained that stealing was not worthy of the people's champions. Often, those who had been caught turned around and began to help go through the rest of their comrades. We walked through the deserted palace and, interested as we were, for a considerable time we didn't notice a change in the attitude of the soldiers around us until suddenly we were surrounded. Who are you? What are you doing here? We're journalists. Here are our passes. Oh, of course. If you could just stand up against this wall for us. Yes, comrade, but why? Are you going to shoot us? No. But comrades, on our passes is the seal of the Bolsheviks. It's different from ours. We cannot read, brother. Then let's go find one of your fellow soldiers who can read. Nope. Why not? After all, it's a serious crime to kill an innocent man. I'm the Commissar. Who are you? What is it? You are foreigners. It is very dangerous. Comrades, these people are foreign comrades from America. They have come here to be able to tell their countrymen about the bravery and revolutionary discipline of the proletarian army. Oh. Uh. 
Sorry. Sorry. You have narrowly escaped. We left the palace. Although it was six in the morning, the night was yet heavy and chill. We heard that Kerensky, the Prime Minister, had fled the city with promises to come back at the head of an army. There was only a faint, unearthly palace stealing over the silent streets, dimming the watchfires, the shadow of a terrible grey dawn rising over Russia. Dawn came, and with it, questions. The Bolsheviks had seized power, yes, but now they had to keep it. Um, Louise? Yes, John? Um, I just had a look at the script. Yes? Uh, where, where are all the meeting scenes? Well, there were quite a lot of meeting scenes in your book, weren't there? Well, well a revolution involves quite a lot of, lot of meetings, doesn't it? Yes, I know, but I thought to speed things up I would cut some of them. Most of them. All of them, actually. Oh, except for a meeting of the armoured car division. Reed, Bryant, John and Louise. Yes? Yes. It's the beginning of the end for the Bolsheviks. The armoured car troops have gathered to vote on whether to fight with the communists or to stay neutral. There's no way the Bolsheviks can win without them. Do you want to see the, the turn, turn of, of the, the tide? The tide isn't wide-eyed children blinking in for men as the distant waves crash into place. It's the blood-tinged rust on the metal of the vassals as they rise from the water, dripping with haste. My chest is ablaze with a smothered discontent that is bent and die-cast into hope. You can hear their thoughts twist like a ghost in the mist as the tide swells to reckon. A vote. The armoured car troops had gathered in the great Mikhailovsky riding school. Only a single arc light burnt dimly high up near the roof. Around squatted the monstrous shapes of the armoured cars. One armoured car was in the centre of the place, under the light, and round it were gathered some 2,000 soldiers, almost lost in the immensity of that imperial building. Perched on top of the car... From the central turret, a soldier named Kanjanov was speaking. It is an awful thing for Russians to kill their Russian brothers. Shoulder to shoulder stood soldiers to the men, united in thought but divided again by political squabbles. Have you forgotten how we took on the Tsar? We conquered the foreign enemy in immortal battles. We stormed the palace and forged our own history. But at what cost? Now... I will not say to you that the provisional government was a democratic government. Oh, we won no coalition wow. with the bourgeoisie. Right, something here, folks. I know that our dead are not yet in their graves. Then have some respect. Yeah. But neutrality is not complicity. Oh, cool. We yes, need a united <laughs> democracy. Pick and if we start. fight on the Bolshevik side, then you'll see Russia lost in chaos and war. Sure. You talk like Kerensky. Yeah. <laughs> Comrades, I bring you greetings from the place where men are digging their graves and call them trenches. Urgently, I came to tell you all, there must be peace at once. Yes. Whoever can give us peace, whether it be a Bolshevik peace or a government peace, we will follow. We cannot fight any longer. We cannot die any longer. Yes. This lingering destruction of our lives cannot continue. I will fight neither Germans nor Russians. I agree, friends. We must have peace, and so we must remain neutral. Oh. <laughs> but aren't you an officer, however much you talk of peace? Exactly. The people at the yeah. top are always calling upon us yeah. to sacrifice more, sacrifice more, exactly. while those who have everything are left alone. Yeah. No, that is not true at all. We're at war with Germany. Would we invite German generals to serve in our parliament? No, of course well, not. Well, obviously not. But we're at war with the capitalists too, and yet we invite them into our government. Yeah. Show me what I'm fighting for. Yeah. Is it the democracy, or is it you capitalist plunderers? Capitalist plunderers? If you can prove to me that what I am defending is the revolution, then I shall go out and fight without threat of firing squad to force me. Here, here. Yeah. When the land belongs to the peasants, and the factories to the workers, and the power, comrades, the power to the Soviets, then we will know that we have something to fight for. And we will fight for it. Yeah. If we stay neutral, nothing, nothing will change. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, say you support the Bolsheviks, uh-huh. then many things will change. Yeah, Much exactly. will change. Yeah. Our cities will be changed to burnt ruins. Oh. Brothers will be changed to so murderous kind. enemies. Art will be changed into smoldering wreckage. Peace changed to tyranny. What do you call this? If we allow more fighting, if we take up arms against each other, we'll all be doomed. We're already doomed. I ask, friends... Friends. Comrades, that we be better, oh, that we do better to one another than coups and revolutions, and that we trust in our government's democratic oh. processes and remain neutral. They lost our trust democratic. a long time ago. You just said they weren't democratic, oh. love. Comrades, comrades, comrades. Comrade Krilenko is here, and he wishes to speak with us. It was Nikolai Krilenko, People's Commissar for Military Affairs. Comrade soldiers, I cannot speak well to you. I am sorry but I have not had any sleep for four nights. I don't need to tell you that I am a soldier. I don't need to tell you that I want peace. What I must say is that the Bolshevik party promise a peace to all people. You are asked to remain neutral. To remain neutral while the officers and death battalions, who are never neutral, shoot us down in the streets and bring back to Petrograd Kerensky, or perhaps some other of his sort. All these moderates who call upon you now to prevent civil war, how have they retained their power except by civil war? That civil class war in which they constantly stood on the side of the bourgeoisie, as they do now. How can I persuade you if you have made up your minds? The question is very plain. On one side are Kerensky, officers, bankers, the moderates, factory owners, generals, parliaments, diplomats. They tell us that their objectives are good. On the other side are the workers, the soldiers and sailors, the poorest peasants. The heroes! The government is in your hands. You are the masters. Great Russia belongs to you. Could you give it back? At the end, he tottered, almost falling. A hundred hands reached up to help him down, and the great dim spaces of the hall gave back the surf of sound that beat upon him. Kanjanov tried to speak again. If I may just speak. Vote, vote, vote. But I'd just like to... Vote, vote, vote. vote. Please, may I? Vote, vote, vote. Never in my life have I seen men trying so hard to understand, to decide. They stood staring with a sort of terrible intentness at the speaker, their brows wrinkled with the effort of thought, sweat standing out on their foreheads, great giants of men with the innocent, clear eyes of children, and the faces of epic warriors. But when the vote came through, it was clear. Only fifty of the thousands present had voted against the Bolsheviks. I watched them as they turned and rapidly walked out of the building and some of them out of the revolution. Pick a side, find your voice. Pick a side, make a choice. Imagine this struggle being repeated in every barracks of the city. The district, the whole front, all of Russia. Imagine the sleepless commissars watching the regiments hurrying from place to place, arguing, threatening, entreating. And then imagine the same in every labour union, in the factories, the villages, on the battleships of the far-flung Russian fleets. Think of the hundreds and thousands of Russians staring up at speakers all over the vast country, the workers, peasants, soldiers, sailors, trying so hard to understand and to choose thinking so intensely and deciding so unanimously at the end. And so was the Russian Revolution. Pick a side, find your voice. Pick a side, make a choice. He had dinner, an excellent dinner, better and cheaper than could be got in most of Petrograd, in a little vegetarian restaurant called I Eat Nobody. Nearby sat a French officer who had just come on foot all the way from Gachina. All is quiet there, 
Kerensky holds the town. Ah, these Russians, they are original, no? What a civil war. Everything except the fighting. We finished eating and sallied out into the town. Just at the door of a nearby train station stood a soldier with a rifle and bayonet fixed. They were surrounded by about a hundred businessmen, government officials and students who attacked them with passionate argument and epithet. The soldier was uncomfortable and hurt, like a child unjustly scolded. A tall young man with a supercilious expression, dressed in the uniform of a student, was leading the attack, which will be presented for you now in the form of a short musical interlude. I presume if fighting brothers you resume You make yourselves the pawns of traitors Tools for murderers to groom Now, brother, you don't understand that there are two classes The proletariat and the bourgeoisie Oh, I know, that's like talking back as peasants Standing gorget anymore and who will squawk Some words that capture your attention But always fail to mention what is truly their intention You just don't know what they meant You simply echo and present the simple words That they are own like parrots that are bone But I am a Marxian student and to listen to me would be prudent And I tell you, listen, while you socialism's what they'll sell you But I'm sure you'll see a great thing for German anarchy Well, brother, you are clearly an educated man And I'm but a simple one But it seems to me that there are two classes The proletariat and the bourgeoisie I suppose you think that Lenin is a friend of the proles Did you know that they drove Lenin in a closed car? Did you know he took money from Germany? Well, I wouldn't know anything about that but it seems that what he says is what I want to hear. Now, there are two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And you are course- a fool, my friend. I spent two years in Schlusselberg. In Schlusselberg. In Schlusselberg. I spent two years in prison in the fortress Schlusselberg. While you sang God Save the Tsar, while you shot revolutionists down. I'm the revolutionist Vasily Georgievich Panyan. I'm sure that you've heard of me, I can imagine. I'm sorry, no. I'm sure that you're a great hero. I am, and I'm opposed to what the Bolsheviks propose. They're destroying our Russia. How do you account for that? Well, I can't account for it at all. It it seems to me perfectly clear that there are two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. I give up. There are two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And whoever isn't on one side is on the other. Louise and I arrive back at where we were staying late that night, only to be beset by our landlady. The House Committee has once again asked that you join the rest of the men on guard duty. What's the reason for this guard duty? To protect the house, and the women, and the children. (laughs) Who from? Robbers and murderers! But suppose there came a commissar from the Bolsheviks to search for guns? Oh, that's what they'll say they are. Besides, what's the difference anyway? Well, that's very... well, I would join you, but um, the American consul has forbidden all US citizens from carrying weapons in Russia, so um, uh, sorry. And so John and I stumbled into bed. But in the small hours of that morning, two events occurred. First, a group of officers disguised as Red Guards seized control of the telephone exchange, shutting down communication throughout the city. And second, in a small town just outside Petrograd called Sarkoy Selo, Kerensky himself returned, riding a white horse at the head of an army of Cossacks. The counter-revolution had begun. The counter-revolutionaries now held the centre of the city, but all around them the Soviet troops were mustering. Street fighting was slowly gathering way, all attempts at compromise had failed. Meanwhile, Kerensky had made a fatal blunder. He had asked the soldiers stationed at Zykolcello to lay down their guns. The soldiers replied that they would remain neutral, but they would not give up their weapons. Kerensky gave them ten minutes in which to obey. This angered the soldiers. For eight months they had been governing themselves by committee, and this smacked of the old regime. A few minutes later, Cossack artillery opened fire on the barracks, killing eight men. From that moment on, there were no more neutral soldiers in Petrograd. At Kolpino, at Ubakovo, at Polkovo and Krasnoyselo were forming battalions increasing in size as the stragglers came in from the surrounding country. Mixed soldiers, sailors and Red Guards, parts of regiments, infantry, cavalry and artillery all together 
and last of all... The Armoured Car Division. Remember them? Day broke, and Kerensky's army came in sight of the Bolshevik troops. They made towards the fight, and the worker hordes pouring out along the straight roads quickened their pace. Thus, upon all points of attack, automatically converged angry human swarms, to be met by commissars and assigned positions or work to do. This was their battle, for their world. The people in charge had been elected by them. For the moment, that incoherent multiple will was one will. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Russia. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Russia. Round the bones up to make your bread and eat enough to keep yourself steady. Surface all up in your feet and bow and us like a rabbit. You would listen when we ask with petitions, protests, words. So now we're gonna debate you in the streets with knives and bombs. You wouldn't listen when we ask for petitions, protests, words and songs. So now we're gonna debate you in the streets with knives and bombs. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of Petrograd. Stand up, people of all Russia. Stand up, people of all Russia. Stand up, people of all Russia. Come on, comrades, hold the line. Come on, comrades. How is this? Only a few days ago, the Red Army was full of leadless bands wandering aimlessly, without food, without artillery and without a plan. But people in revolt have a way of defying military precedent. Those who participated in the fighting described to me how the soldiers fought until they ran out of cartridges and then swarmed. How the untrained workmen rushed the charging Cossacks and tore them from their horses. How the anonymous hordes of people gathering in the darkness around the battle rose like a tide and poured over the enemy. I didn't see the battle. Or Trotsky's speeches proclaiming victory. Or the triumphant revolutionary marches. I did see a man shot dead in front of the German embassy by a sniper. Later... When I arrived on Goggle Street, I saw an armoured car coming towards me at full speed. I didn't have time to take shelter. I hoped that the car would go on, but directly in front of me it stopped with a jerk as if something had gone wrong with the machinery. I had no way of knowing which side it was on until it began to spout fire, shooting up the street and occasionally right into the midst of the crowd. Then I knew that it belonged to the counter-revolutionaries, because there were twenty in our crowd, and about six were soldiers on the Bolshevik side. All that happened in the next few minutes is not exactly clear. One thing that I remember, which struck me even then, was that no one in our crowd screamed, although seven were killed. I remember also the two little street boys. One whimpered pitifully when he was shot, the other died instantly, 
dropping at our feet in an inanimate bundle of rags, his pinched little face covered with his own blood. I remember the old peasant woman who kept on crossing herself and whispering prayers. The hopelessness of our position was just beginning to sink in on me, when the Bolshevik soldiers with a great shout ran straight into the fire. They succeeded in reaching the car and thrust their bayonets inside again and again and again and again. The sharp cries of the victims rose above the shouting and then suddenly everything was sickeningly quiet. They dragged three dead men out of the armoured car and they lay face up on the cobbles, unrecognisable and stuck all over with bayonet wounds. Only the driver escaped. He begged for mercy, and one Bolshevik said, For God's sake, let him go. Let's not kill any more than we have to. We went to Moscow on the first train that entered the city after the Bolsheviki had won it. We'd heard reports that the entire city had been destroyed in the fighting, and wanted to see if it was true. It wasn't. It was difficult to find a place to sleep. We wandered from hotel to hotel. The stolid, bewhiskered clerks made odd replies to my queries. Yes, we have some very comfortable rooms, but all windows are shut out. If the Barishna does not mind a little, uh, uh, fresh air. It was 25 degrees below zero, so we continued our search. After about two hours, we found a room at the National. It is extremely dangerous to be here, said an Englishman I met in the hall who didn't approve of lady war correspondence. You will probably be murdered by morning. Great! We visited the headquarters of the Moscow Soviet. A low-voiced hum of talk underlaid with the whirring bass of a score of sewing machines filled the place. Huge bolts of red and black cotton cloth were unrolled, serpentining across the floor and over tables, at which sat fifty women cutting and sewing streamers and banners for the funeral of the revolutionary dead. The faces of these women were roughened and scarred with life at its most difficult. They worked now sternly, many of them with eyes red from weeping. The losses of the Red Army had been heavy. A soldier lay asleep on the floor. Next to him lay a Bolshevik poster which had been written on in scrawled, painful handwriting. The writing was blurred with what looked like tears. Alexei Vinogradov, D. Meskvin, S. Stolbikov, A. Voskresensky, D. Leonsky, D. Priobrezansky, V. Ledansky. M. Birchkov. Sleep, warrior eagles. Sleep with peaceful soul. You have deserved our own one's happiness and eternal peace. Under the earth of the grave, you have straightly closed your ranks. Sleep, citizens. Our window looked out over the Kremlin and the Red Square. Night had already fallen and out of the darkness loomed a long, mysterious row of fires. After dinner, we walked up over to investigate them. The first thing I realised after I crossed under the great arch was that the Kremlin was still standing. We'd had reports in Petrograd that it had been razed to the ground, but there it stood, beautiful beyond description, lit up weirdly by a long line of sputtering torches stuck upon poles beside the north wall. As we came closer, a strange sight unfolded before us. A huge trench, many hundreds of feet in length, was being carved out of the frozen ground. A young student who read over our passes explained what they were doing. The Brotherhood Grave. Tomorrow we shall bury here 500 proletarians who died for the revolution. Here, in this holy place. Holiest of all Russia. We shall bury our most holy. Here, where are the tombs of the Tsars, our Tsar, the people, shall sleep. You foreigners look down on us Russians because for too long we tolerated a medieval monarchy. But we saw that the Tsar wasn't the only tyrant in the world. Capitalism was worse. And in all the countries of the world, 
capitalism was emperor. Russian revolutionary tactics are best. We stayed there nearly all night. It was terrifyingly still and lonesome. There was no sound but the clatter of spades and the sputter of torches. There were no stars, and the darkness hung down heavily like a great bell. We arrived early the next morning to watch the funeral. Already through the Iberian Gate a human river was flowing, with an endless stream of banners, all shades of red with silver and gold lettering, knots of crepe hanging from the top, and some anarchist flags, black with white letters. The vast red square was spotted with people, thousands of them. I remarked that, as the throng passed the Iberian Chapel, where always before the passerby had crossed himself, they did not seem to notice it. And then, on the bitter wind which made the banners flutter, came voices singing hoarsely, choked with sobs. They're singing the revolutionary funeral march. quite near me tried to hurl herself after a coffin as it was being lowered. Her thin coating of civilization dropped from her in a moment. She forgot the revolution, forgot the future of mankind, remembered only a lost one. With all her frenzied strength she fought against the friends who tried to restrain her, crying out the name of the man in the coffin she screamed, bit, scratched like a wounded wild thing until she was finally carried away, moaning, and half unconscious. I suddenly realised stood there, watching people crying and singing, that the devout Russian people no longer needed priests to pray them into heaven. On earth, they were building a kingdom more bright than any heaven had to offer, and for which it was a glory to die. We left Moscow and made our meandering way back to Petrograd. One night, we found ourselves in the back of a truck, whose driver had agreed to take us all the way into the city. John and I sat there, half asleep. Maybe it'll be worth it. Maybe we're building something beautiful. Do you really think it's worth all these people dying for, darling? I'd die for it. 
For a better world, without a second thought, I'd die for that. How do you know it will be a better world? <laughs> How could it possibly be worse? The driver suddenly flung up one hand and pointed. The glittering lights of the city had just come into view. Look! Can you see it? Petrograd. Ours. Our Petrograd. Snow. 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 It was on November 5th that the snow came. In the morning we woke to window ledges heaped white and snowflakes falling so whirling thick it was impossible to see ten feet ahead. In a twinkling, the gloomy city became white, dazzling. In spite of the revolution, in spite of all of Russia plunging dizzily into an unknown and terrible future, joy swept the city with the coming of the snow. Everybody was smiling. People ran out into the streets, holding out their arms to the soft, falling flakes, laughing. Hidden was all the greyness, only the golden-coloured spires and cupolas with heightened splendour gleamed through the white snow. I sat one evening in a, in a tractier, as a kind of lower-class inn, across the street from Smolny. A low-ceilinged, loud place, much frequented by the Red Guards, they crowded it now, filling the place with foul cigarette smoke, while the harassed waiters ran about crying, Scheiss, scheiss, in a minute, right away. In one corner sat a man in the uniform of a captain, addressing the assembly, which um, interrupted him at every few words. You are no better than murderers, <laughs> shooting down your Russian brothers in the streets. When did we do that? Last Sunday you did it when the Yunkers... Well, didn't they shoot us? Look at my arm! Haven't I got something to remember them by, the devils? You should remain neutral. You should remain neutral. Who are you to destroy the legal government? Who is Lenin, a German? Who are you? A counter-revolutionist? <laughs> a provocateur? All right. <laughs> you call yourselves the people of Russia. But you're not the people of Russia. The peasants are the people of Russia. Wait until the peasants... Yeah, yeah, wait until the peasants speak. We've heard it all before, Pradansky. We know what the peasants will say. Aren't they workers like ourselves? In the long run, everything depended upon the peasants. More than 80% of the Russian people were peasants. The Bolsheviki had a comparatively small following among them, and a permanent rule of Russia by the industrial workers alone was impossible. One of the first actions of the Bolsheviks had been to call for a congress of peasants. Representatives voted for and by the peasants across the country would come to meet in Petrograd. If the Bolsheviks could win them over, victory would be assured. That was a very big if. The first vote showed that more than half of the delegates were left socialist revolutionaries. Not Bolsheviks, but socialists nonetheless. While the Bolsheviki controlled only a fifth, the moderates a quarter, the rest were comprised of various disorganised groups. Almost immediately, it was evident that most of the delegates were hostile. If I may speak for the Bolsheviks. Down no, with him. With yeah, him. Yeah, you with the Bolsheviks. We left socialist revolutionaries refused to recognise this so-called workers' and peasants' government until the peasants are represented in it. Everyone. At present, it is nothing but a dictatorship of the workers. <laughs> we insist upon the formation of a new government which will represent the entire democracy. Oh, come on. On the third day, Lenin mounted the tribune. Oh, my God. Lenin? The room went What's wild. he doing How here? Go back to Germany. I do not come here as a member of the Council of People's Commissars, but as a member of the Bolshevik faction duly elected Julie? to this <laughs> very <laughs> Congress. Right, right. However, nobody will deny that the present government of Russia has been formed by the Bolshevik party. Oh. So that, for all intents and purposes, is the same thing. Here, the right benches broke into a deafening clamour, but the centre and left were curious, and you held silence. Shut up! Tell me frankly, 
You peasants to whom we have given the lands of the bourgeoisie. What? That was our policy. Yeah. You have plagiarised the Socialist Revolutionary Manifesto intact. Intact. My party wrote that policy after the most careful compilation of the wishes of the peasants themselves. The peasants. It is an outrage that you have taken our policy of land redistribution and claimed it as your own. But... If land redistribution really is your own policy, it is. then why do you so object to us passing it? If it is the peasants' wishes, why would they oppose it? We, the Bolsheviki, are the party of the proletariat. Oh, here we of go. The peasant proletariat as Where well as the, the industrial peasants, proletariat. And we, the Bolsheviki, are the protectors of the Soviets of the peasant Soviets, as well as those of the workers and the, the soldiers. The present there. government of Russia is a government of Soviets. Uh-huh. We have not only invited the peasant Soviets to join that government, oh, have you? but we have also <laughs> invited representatives of the left socialist revolutionaries to enter the Council of People's Commissars. I highly doubt that. In these stormy debates, the Bolsheviki were twice on the point of quitting the assembly, both times restrained by their leaders. It seemed to me as if the Congress were hopelessly deadlocked. But none of us knew that a series of secret conferences were already going on between the left socialist revolutionaries and the Bolsheviki at Smolny. The left socialist revolutionaries had demanded that there be a government composed of all the socialist parties, with an equal number of delegates from the peasants as there were from the workers and soldiers and Lenin and Trotsky were to be banned from participation. The Bolsheviks came up with a compromise. Parliament would be more equal, with the same number of seats for the military, peasants and workers, and extra seats available for the various trade union groups. In return, city councils would be abolished, and Lenin and Trotsky would be allowed to continue their work unimpeded. And so, one Wednesday morning, after a terrible all-night struggle, an agreement was reached. In an immense white meeting room, everybody was waiting, with that solemnity which attends the great moments of history. Zinoviev arrived and stood on the platform. Behind him were two banners intertwined against a white wall, over the empty frame from which the Tsar's picture had been torn. He announced that an agreement has been reached with the Peasants' Congress. With a shout of, The, the war, war is over! over. Long live the United Democracy! The Peasants poured out of the building. It was already dark, and on the ice-covered snow glittered the pale light of moon and star. Amid the crashing, full-throated shouts of the soldiers, the peasants formed a line, unfurling the great red banner of the Executive Committee of the All-Russian Peasant Soviets, embroidered newly in gold. Long live the union of the revolutionary and toiling masses. From somewhere torches appeared, blazing orange in the night a thousand times reflected in the facets of ice, streaming out smokily over the throng as it moved down the banks of the Fontanka, singing between crowds that stood in astonished silence. And so the great procession wound through the city, growing and unfurling ever new red banners lettered in gold. In front of me, I saw that two old peasants, bowed with toil, were walking hand in hand, their faces illuminated with childlike bliss. One spoke to the other. I'm not tired. I walked on air all the way. I'd like to see them take away our land again now. A grizzled old soldier was sobbing like a child. Alexandra Kolontai, the Bolshevik minister for women, rapidly blinked back tears. The immense sound rolled down the streets, burst and seared into the quiet sky. Suddenly, by common impulse... We found ourselves mumbling together into the smooth, lifting unison of the Internationale. Arise, ye workers from your slumber. Arise, ye prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders, and at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve our masses, arise, arise. 
will change henceforth the old traditions and spurn the dust to win the prize. So comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The that's it that's how the book ends that's how john's book ends my book six red months in russia carries on after the peasants congress giving a more rounded picture of the full process of the establishment of the soviet russia great thanks louise and if you're interested in more of my work i'd recommend mirrors of moscow my collection of profiles on various people i encountered on my return to russia after louise after Louise, what's wrong? John Reed had been to Harvard. John Reed was friends with intellectuals and journalists. They laughed at him and his revolution. They thought it was a romance. And it was. You know, in a way, it was. John Reed had fallen in love with the revolution. Louise, what's wrong? John, on my return to Russia after... If he'd stuck to writing about women or nature or poetry, he probably would have been held up as one of those great American authors you all hear so much about today. But John Reed saw strikes and protests and suffering. And most of all, John Reed saw the revolution. And he fell in love at first sight. Louise, what is it? After what? After you died, John. After you died, I went back to Russia, wrote another book, got married a third time. I managed to persuade him I was 28 when I was 38, which I was very proud of. Had a kid. I had a daughter, John. I wish you could have met. The man I married after you died, John, he was so boring. I met a girl in Paris, a sculptor. I fell in love with her. She was so beautiful, John. Then my husband found out and the whole thing came crashing down around my ears. And then I died too. Not long after. All that happened. All that happened after you died. John Reed was a romantic. Tell me. Tell me how it happened. No, um, that's not right. Tell them. Okay. Okay, I owe you that much. John Reed was a romantic. Now let us tell you the story of how he died. John Reed went back to America. He was put on trial for his revolutionary writings, several times, each time ending in a hung jury until his eventual acquittal. He wrote his book. He wrote Ten Days That Shook the World. Max Eastman, John Reed's friend and the editor of the newspaper that he worked for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he wrote it in another ten days and ten nights, or, or possibly a little more. He was gaunt, unshaven, greasy-skinned, and had a stark, sleepless, half-feral look on his slightly potato-like face. He'd come down after a night's work for a cup of coffee. Max, um, first of all, don't tell anybody where I am. Um, I'm writing the Russian Revolution in a book. I've got all the placards and papers up there in a little room and, and a Russian dictionary and I'm working all day and all night. I haven't shut my eyes in 36 hours. I'll finish the whole thing in uh, two weeks. And I've got a name for it too. Ten Days That Shook the World. Um, sorry, goodbye, I can't talk. I've, <laughs> I've got to get some coffee, but um, don't, for God's sake, tell anybody where I am. See... Uh, There are not so many feats that can be found in all, and I mean all, American literature to surpass what John Reed did there in those two or three weeks in that little room with those piled up papers in a half-known tongue piled clear up to the ceiling and a small dog-eared dictionary and a memory and a determination to get it right and a gorgeous, gorgeous imagination to paint it when he got it. But what I really, really wanted to comment on 
was the unqualified, concentrated joy in his wild eyes that morning. He was doing what he was made to do. Writing a fucking great book. And he had a name for it, too. Ten Days That Shook the World. Lenin would write the introduction, he said. With the greatest interest and with never slackening attention, I read John Reed's book, Ten Days That Shook the World. Unreservedly do I recommend it to the workers of the world. Here is a book which I should like to see published in millions of copies and translated into all languages. John Reed returned to Russia. He went to a conference in Baku, and sometime on his journey back, it is not exactly clear when, he contracted typhus. He went to Moscow. He met his wife, Louise Bryant, who was waiting for him. On September 15th, 1920, he ran into her room and embraced her. A month later, he was dead. But walking in the park, under the white birch trees and talking through brief happy nights, death and separation seemed very far away. John Reed was a romantic. Of John's illness, I can scarcely write. There was so much pain. I only want you all to know how he fought for his life. He was never delirious in the hideous way most typhus patients are. He always knew me, and his mind was full of poems and stories and beautiful thoughts. <laughs> he would say, You know how it is when you go to Venice, and you ask the people, is this Venice? Just for the pleasure of hearing the reply. He would tell me that the water he drank was full of little songs, and he related like a child wonderful experiences we'd had together in which we were very brave. And then five days before he died, his right side became paralysed. And after that, he could not speak. Thinking and dreaming Day and night and day Yet cannot think one bitter thought away That we have lost each other You and I Even when he died, I did not believe it. I must have been there hours afterwards still talking to him and holding his hands. John Reed died of typhus 100 years ago this year. He was only 32. A small bottle of medicine which could have been bought anywhere in the Western world at that time would have saved his life. But America had decided that there were to be sanctions on Russia. No food would go to its starving and no medicine to its sick. John Reed was murdered. I've been in Red Square since the funeral. Since that day, all those people came to bury and all honour our dear John Reed. John Reed was murdered by businessmen and governments who decided that while there was more than enough medicine to go around, Russia should not have any of it. John Reed was murdered by men in suits deciding who gets to have what. Once some soldiers came over to the grave, they took off their hats and spoke reverently. What a good fellow he was. He came all the way across the world for us. He was one of ours. He came all this way to tell our story. John Reed is buried at the Kremlin Wall, one of the only Americans to receive such an honour. He is ash and memories and nothing else. He came all this way to tell our story. But imagine if he could see us, us, right here, right now. Imagine he could see the world today. He came all this way to tell our story. What would he say to us, do you think? What would John Reed say? He came all this way to tell us their story. You've been listening to 10 Days That Shook the World, adapted from the writings of John Reed, Louise Bryant and others. 
In this programme you heard Eve Morris as John Reed, Katrina Rose as Louise Bryant, Natasha Dupre as First Russian, Fanula Donnelly as Second Russian and Jacob Bishop as Third Russian. Incidental music was by Eli Wooding, songs were by Natasha Dupre, Katrina Rose, Eli Wooding and the company. Editing by Freya Stevens, additional singing by Archie Griffiths. This programme was written and directed by Milo Morris. This production was made possible via the generous support of all our GoFundMe backers, with thanks to all those who took part in and supported the development of this play. This programme was initially produced as part of the Thornhill Virtual Fringe, and thereby hangs a tale production.